From Hype HQ in Chicago, Illinois, Startup Hype Man presents the Goat to Market Show. What's up, everyone? I am your host, Raj Nation, the founder and chief pitch artist of Startup Hype Man. This podcast is where we bring you founders, company leaders, and creatives who are building it, who are doing it, who have been there and done that. And they pull back the curtain on their go-to-market strategies so that you can build a venture that you love and become the GOAT of your industry. Want first listen on episodes before anyone else? Subscribe to our newsletter at StartupHypeMan.com. You will get alerts every Sunday morning when we release new episodes. All right, let's hear how today's guest is becoming the GOAT. Ladies and gentlemen, making her way to the microphone from Washington, D.C., and currently residing in Austin, Texas. She is the GM of innovation at Samcart. Please welcome Olivia Hi there. Welcome to the show, Olivia. As I mentioned, she is Olivia Heron, GM of innovation at Samcart. What is Samcart? Well, if you do anything in e-commerce, you've probably heard of them before. They are the e-commerce platform for creators, helping digital creators maximize their profits, turning their products and services into digital platforms where they can sell their stuff really any place, anywhere, anytime. Samcart has done a lot since their inception, most recently in 2022, raising an $82 million Series B round. They, have, they now have three different products and they total 80,000 customers across their three different product lines. Um, there's Sam Cart Standard, there's Creator U, and there's the recently acquired Drop Deck now as well. And as GM of innovation, Olivia here is essentially the, the CEO of these last, last two product lines, Creator U and Drop Deck. And Olivia joins us today on the Goat to Market Show season finale episode. So Olivia, once again, welcome to the show. Our topic today is building a sales team from scratch. Why is this on your mind? Why is it important to you? Hi, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. Um, this is very top of mind um, after the acquisition of DropDeck. So we are um, just paywalled. We just launched about two and a half months ago and we're growing which has been awesome. And we're trying to figure out what kind of our next steps look like in terms of the sales side of the house and potentially bringing on an AE, potentially exploring kind of more enterprise-based sales or team-based sales and, and digging in on all things. We have a lot of customers at Startup Hype Man and just a lot of people in our community who are at that stage where they're trying to figure out what their sales strategy needs to be and how do they how do they stand up a sales team, all that stuff. So we're gonna this is gonna be a highly relevant episode, I know, for a lot of our listeners. We're gonna dive entirely into this in just a few moments. But first, let's talk about you and let's learn about Olivia the person. Now I mentioned in your introduction, you grew up born and raised in DC. What's it like to grow up in a district and not a state? Well, uh, besides that we can't uh, participate in federal elections, uh, we were, uh, it was a, it was an awesome place to grow up. I grew up right uh, outside of Capitol Hill. So literally within uh, view of, of the Capitol. And um, I loved the city. It was a huge, diverse culture. It had lots and lots of lots of different diasporas, like in and around town. And I ate a lot of really great food. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever consider a career in politics? No, never. <laughs> I saw I saw all my friends' parents. Uh, a lot of them were diplomats. Uh, a lot had political roles. It wasn't something that I was uh, super passionate about. Both of my parents worked for the American Red Cross when I was growing up. Um, okay. And so I, I did get to experience that. Um, they did an incredible work. And um, I was always really proud of, of all the things that they had achieved at the end of the day. What are the, so with your parents working for the Red Cross, um, what's one or two things that you feel either was directly taught to you or just kind of like trickled down to you that you think you carry with you today? Yeah. So um, I guess on on my dad's side, um, he would um, run disaster services for really big um, events, including Hurricane Andrew. And and on his side, I, I think um, one of the things that he did just super effectively was 
organize and train people, like help them really understand the mission, help them really understand what they needed to do and like kind of get everyone marching in the same order uh, and, and direction. And on my mom's side, honestly, so she was in fundraising forever and she was really good at it. She actually went back to school um, much later in life and became a physician's assistant, worked for the Navy for a long time. And uh, on her side, I think I just learned perseverance. I mean, she would decide to go do something and she'd go do it. And um, it was just incredibly uh, inspiring from from my side. So um, yeah, each of them did really awesome things. Uh, and uh, I'm proud to be their kid older, old adult now, I guess. I'm not a kid anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Coming into more of like your professional career, um, you know, you've had a a career at a lot of different, you know, key names, um, Salesforce being one of them, um, which was, you know, Buddy Media that got acquired by Salesforce. Curalate, um, you were at Facebook at one point. Um, You've been the head of sales uh, at Facebook slash Meta. Um, So a lot of, a lot of cool things here now, obviously at Samcart. Um, across this, if you think back to when you were in college and you were like, oh, in my career, I'm going to do this. And here's what my days are going to look like versus what your days, you know, whether it's at Sam cart now or some of the other roles you've had, how closely tied is what you thought it would be to what it actually is? Nothing. It's not tied. Um, so I, I went to a Haverford College, which was an amazing liberal arts school, and you could sort of pursue all kinds of different things. And um, I went there going in saying I was going to be a biology major. Um, I was going to go to med school. I was going to be a pediatric cardiologist uh, and um, ended up studying political science and sociology. I just sort of fell in love with both of them. Um, and, um, actually were afterwards went to law or went to work for a law firm and was a paralegal. And, uh, one of the partners that I supported at the time, shout out to Adam Chase, um, was going to write me a, a review or, um, a reference for, for school. And he said, you know, I don't think you should go to law school. And I was like, what <laughs> just took my LSAT. He's like, you just, you really like to talk too much and you're really great at, at storytelling and, and sales <laughs> and marketing. And I think you really should maybe look at account management. And they got me into my very first startup. So um, I ended up interviewing and going to a company called Smart Brief, who um, this law firm represented at the time and loved it. Who knew? I, I really like talking to people on the phone and kind of the rest was history. So not connected in any way, shape or form, did not realize I was going to be in tech. You know, Facebook launched when I was in college. Um, so I got to experience kind of that massive shift in in sort of the, the tech concept of a job. I don't think that was like really prevalent before this, unless you were selling, I guess, hardware. Uh, and um, I mean, I'm glad I did. That's a great story. And <laughs> in, in looking at some of the more recent roles you've had uh, and even being like head of sales uh, at Meta on their SMB team, you know, as we start to, we'll get more into our conversation today around building a sales team, but um, Meta is a massive organization, right? 10,000 plus employees, I think. Um, how do you, how do you do something like from zero essentially inside of such a big organization? Yeah. So Meta is 50,000, I think, plus. Is it that much? Okay. (laughs) It's that big. It's a huge, it's a huge company. And um, it's funny that you asked that. I, um, I got tapped. um, Well, they, they posted a job for this, this role leading what at the time was called the lab. And it was a new kind of innovation team for quickly testing hypotheses around go to market for small businesses. So how did we figure out kind of the next wave of um, what our sales strategy should look like for small businesses. What were the products that we needed to sell? How did we talk about them? How did we approach those conversations? What resources were needed, et cetera. And this had never existed. And I was thinking to myself, man, this is kind of like running a startup within this like huge organization. This, this should be super fun. And I met with my uh, VB at the time, Rich Rao, and he actually has an engineering background and ended up in sales, which I always thought was sort of an interesting shift and in, in dynamic for him. And um, and he said to me, well, you just, you get to be a VC here. You you choose where you want to kind of allocate your resources to all of these different startup tests based on hypotheses. And he said, I really hope you fail more than you succeed. 
<laughs> what? Uh, what do you mean? He was like, well, if you're, if you're failing all the time, you're taking really big swings. And so I, you know, I hope you fail 10 times. And the one time you succeed, you absolutely knock it out of the park. And, um, that was really scary. Uh, and so I really pushed the team that we then assembled kind of around this, this innovation group to really think about failures and celebrate failures and figure out why and what we needed to do next and all of the other things. And I think in some ways, that mindset has then carried me into going back into the startup world and really being comfortable with the fact that like you you've got to make lots and lots and lots of and do lots and lots and lots of incremental tests to really understand like where is this going to work and and where where is it not going to work at the end of the day. So that was really fun to take from zero to one. It still exists. That team is awesome. Um, shout out to the lab Meta, um, and and I hope that they're still failing all the time. To be honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> so Sam Cart, you've been uh, at the company uh, since you know early part of 2023. Um, you're heading up two different product lines. I gave a very brief introduction in the beginning, but could you maybe just expand for our listeners on the background of Sam Cart and then specifically these these individual product lines? Yeah. So Sam Card was founded um, by two brothers who were teaching baseball tactics, um, especially around hitting. I think at the time. And uh, they were selling it via video content and they could not figure out a good e-commerce platform to do this on. Uh, and out of that was born Samcart. And so um, they decided to try and figure out how to um, really enable digital sales. So you, you don't have a product catalog and all these other things. It's really the, the online sale of a, you know, a PDF or um, a video or a subscription to something, et cetera. And um, out of that, Samcart was born. It's now an incredibly robust tool. Um, you check out anywhere is kind of the big key of it because uh, at this point in time, you know, having a, a page building tool doesn't really go that far. Your, your, your um, audience really wants to buy wherever they want to buy. And so being able to distribute that is, is super awesome and um, has continued to just explode in terms of, of um, adoption and um, more importantly, enablement of, of people at the end of the day. And um there's about 50 million creators, um, people who identify creators. And I think that number is growing tremendously every single day um, as people become side hustlepreneurs or, um, you know, solopreneurs or, you know, want to just get out of kind of the, the rat race. And um, of those, about 47 million of them really haven't sold much. And um, that was identified about a year and a half ago. And as a result, Creator U was born. And Creator U is uh, an online platform and, and set of tools for creators to learn how to become creators. How do you grow your audience? How do you think through um, developing your content that you're going to sell? How do you know what niche is the right niche? Like, uh, how do you how do you actually sell at the end of the day? Uh, and so it's got um, social dashboards for kind of tracking performance. Um, there's an AI assistant in there to help you think through writing eBooks or, or um, video sales pages, etc. Uh, and, and it's a tool that's growing every single day and has, has tons of users, which is really awesome. Um, and then about seven months ago or so, eight months ago, um, our CEO, Justin Smith, um, I, I guess was like deep on Reddit somewhere and read about drop deck and got curious and reached out to these guys. They were based in Europe and, um, said, you know, we, we really want to kind of in conjunction with teaching people how to become creators, also give them the tools for really making beautiful content that they can in fact sell. And drop deck was doing just that. And at the time it was just presentations. Um, and you know, the idea of being, you know, AI and generative and all this stuff is, is being thrown around kind of everywhere, but the, the drop deck backstory was, you know, two engineering and product people who were asked to make decks all the time. And hated doing it. It was a lot of work, <laughs> a lot of energy. You would like think through what it was going to look like, and it would come out looking like shit, honestly. <laughs> and it was just really, really hard to cobble your content into templates. And so they built this platform where um, they could just start typing their ideas, and it would generate really beautiful content out of these ideas. And instead of it being a template where you have to kind of go in and try to mash all your stuff into what it already looks like, it actually creates this content for you, and then you can design it, play with it, et cetera. And so Justin saw these guys reached out, the rest is history. We ended up acquiring them. And, um, and yeah, we, we've, um, the product is now live. It does, um, eBooks and kind of brochures. And it also does obviously presentations and a whole bunch more to come in, in the coming months, which is really awesome and exciting. So 
with now with the right understanding of the company, let's learn, let's get into our main feature conversation here, which is around, you know, what you've been embarking on at Samcart and what you previously did at Meta, which is building a sales team from scratch. First thing I want to ask here is, especially as a company is on their initial come up, um, it's oftentimes founder-led sales. At the same time, there are a lot of scenarios where you have founders who have no experience selling or scared of it. They want to outsource or hire it out like immediately, they don't want to do it at all because it's just not their thing, you know. Um, what's your stance here? Is it is it uh, necessary? Is it vital for a founder to be selling their own product at least at the start? Yeah. So the first thing I'll say is, um, if you're a founder, you're already a salesperson. Um, you've had to convince people to work with you or partner with you on things. Uh, you you may have gotten funding, so you had to convince. VCs to actually give you some money. Um, you may have gotten partners. You've had to convince those partners to, to work with you. Um, you hopefully have hired one or two, you, may, you maybe have hired one and two employees and you've convinced them to come on board. And all of that is actually sales. Um, so at the end of the day, um, I think it's really important for founders to be comfortable with their own kind of sales narrative and story. Um, that's not easy. It's not like it's the most comfortable thing on the planet, but um, I would argue that founders also have one other like really key trait to being a great salesperson, which is hopefully really deep curiosity. Um, if they've gotten to the point where they've got a product they can go sell, they've spent a lot of time thinking about the problem that they're solving at the end of the day. And so like they're effectively sales. You're, you're already a salesperson if, if that's kind of the jump. Um, and so what I say to, to most founders who are trying to kind of grapple with this and they're not super comfortable with it is like, you've got to get comfortable because you're doing it all the time. Like in every role that you play as the founder of a company, you actually are selling people on taking some sort of action or another, uh, which is really important. And you've got to practice. Uh, and I really recommend practicing whether that's, you know, recording yourself and watching it back or it's pitching it to your friends having just like a mini scorecard that you know that you know your kind of two-liner really well and what you do really well um, and you know what problem you solve really well are like the two core ingredients to that. Um, but you're already doing it. So you should keep doing it and keep testing it and trying it because it's only going to make when you do decide or if you decide to bring on a sales team, like way more impactful at the end of the day. So when then... Does it actually make sense? And, and is it based on timeline? Is it based on amount of traction? Is it something else? When does it make sense to now think beyond yourself as the founder and say, we got to start hiring people to do this? I think it, so it depends obviously on what your, your motion looks like first and foremost. So if you're a product led growth situation and you're getting people in because of the product and maybe you've got a freemium like model, um, it probably doesn't make sense until you're in a place where you're finding that you've got this opportunity to go further. Um, meaning that you've, you've got people coming in, they're seeing that aha moment, they're getting other people potentially at their organization in and using the product. And you're like, okay, we, we've got to figure this out. Now, those roles are really interesting um, because that is almost an expansion-like role as opposed to like a hard and fast, you know, outbound AE. You're, you're, when you're bringing someone on in that instance, you're bringing someone on who's really diving deep on use cases and understanding these businesses and um, building, you know, relationships and um key stakeholders internally. And it's a, it, you know, it's a really different motion. Now, if you are a sales led growth, you need to get out and get in front of people. Um, you may need to bring someone on earlier than if you're in the product world, product led growth world. Um, and that's because you, you may need more of the hard and fast person who can actually go after um, from like an SDR perspective, for example, um, the right people to start getting them on the phone to really be testing out this pitch and trying to figure out all of those things. And there's no hard and fast timeline there. I think once it becomes more than 25-ish percent of your time, it's probably time to start looking for maybe bringing someone else on board. Um, or if when you're really having conversations, you're seeing that there is a repeatable process there, then it's also probably time to try and bring somebody else on board to see if you can scale that up at the end of the day. So... Now we have to think about who these people are actually going to be, right? Mm -hmm. Who you're bringing on to the team. Um, 
there's a, there's a handful of questions I want to ask around this. The first one I'll start with is setting up the hiring process in the first place. Um, what advice do you have here? Is it, you know, to ask people, you know, first, is it uh, post, do you, do you pay money to post on indeed? What's, what, what's the, what's your opinion of the right path to go about this? So I think the first part, um, yes, I mean, always use your network. I think that that there's like sort of a no brainer there in terms of just being able to have those conversations and think through it. Um, I also think I even to this day, I I think I have quite a lot of experience in go-to-market and to this day, I meet up with other friends who are also in the go-to-market space to like bounce ideas and figure out if I'm thinking about something the right way, or am I missing something they may flag to me. Um, and I, I think that that's always really valuable and important as well. Um, but yes, I think at the end of the day, um, if you're on the product led side, I think what you're looking for more is, um, almost an account management background. So, um, they're really focused on expansion. Um, they're really focused on digging deep on use cases and figuring out how to better prop those up or better align them to the product or bring in more people as a result. Um, they're really focused on mapping organizations. So you need to know who you need to get to in order for that to become kind of a bigger part of the, the sales process. Um, and then they're figuring out how to get uh, referrals through that. So, you know, if, if your friend likes it, they may refer you to the next person, et cetera. And so, yeah, you know, I, I think that can be a sales background. It can be an account management background, but it's somebody who's deeply curious about the customer at the end of the day. And the focus maybe isn't actually on that first contract. The focus is on that huge contract that's coming way down the line where you're continuing to grow and grow and grow. And, and, and that expansion base is what you're going after. Um, you know, if, if you're on the sales led side, I think you're also focused on um, deeply curious people. Um, but I would also say you're focused on people who are persistent um, and they kind of have the hustle and they're sort of willing to just ask. Like the, the worst case scenario is someone says no, right? When you're in sales. And even when someone says no, there are paths after that. And so finding people who are comfortable with hearing a no, willing to move on to the next thing, and also willing to just try new stuff will go a really long way in helping you ultimately get to the right people. Um, so that's how I sort of think about those roles based on how you're going to market differentiating um, and, and who you might be looking for, for each. What's your stance on, like, I've got an opinion on this and I'll share it, but I want to hear your stance. Getting someone who has a big logo attached to their name, meaning like maybe they, they did sales for Salesforce or for some massive company, um, like uh, Intel, right. A place like that. Um, where you say, oh, you know, they did it for Intel. They're they're an A plus player over here. What's what's your stance on on going for that as kind of a lead indicator? Uh, I I think in most cases, especially when it's a first hire or a very early hire, that you're not going to have any process. Uh, you won't have any kind of deeply defined funnel. Uh, you won't have any kind of basic <laughs> forecasting yet. You, you may have pieces of all of these things, but you're not going to have a lot of them and you're going to need somebody to come in and help with that. Now, I think having an understanding of some of those processes from other places is really important, but you building that and holding yourself accountable to it is very, very different. And so I think on the whole, I, I tend to shy away from very early hires having big logos because I don't necessarily think that that's Ultimately, um, those roles are so well-defined. They know exactly what to do and when to do it and how that getting somebody into a world where they have sort of no definition um, could be really, really challenging at the end of the day. That's not to say that they can't do it. Um, there could be other reasons to bring them in, like they really know deeply about a specific industry and they're showing that hustle or something else, sure. But on the whole, I think, that's not the rate. That's not where I would start in terms of the first hire. I share that same belief. Um, that person is likely really strong at executing on a designed playbook, yep. but their figure out ability quotient, if you will, is quite low. And they will not only not know what to do, but also get quite frustrated 
the second they're like, Hey, I need a case study for this. And you're like, we don't have that. <laughs> yeah, that definitely happens. And you know, it's interesting that you say that because one thing, one question that I like to ask during interviews is, is what do you do when you hear no? Just, mm-hmm. I'm just curious always, like, what do you do when you hear no? What's your next move? And obviously different people have very different answers to that. Some of them are really baked. <clears throat> it's like, oh, well then I do blah, blah, blah. And like, they have a very strict process for it. Other people like don't, they, that question sort of flusters them. Um, and then some people, the, the first thing out of their mouth is like, oh, I hear it all the time. And, you know, I segment those people into three buckets and then they start talking through it. And you're like, that's what you need um, because it's the, the like kind of learning behind the no, that's always crucial. Understanding how they get there, how persistent are they? Sometimes that's good. Sometimes knowing when to walk away is really important. Um, but ultimately across all of those things, it shows a lot of self-awareness. And I think in first sales hire, a real understanding of self-awareness, so a real ability to critique themselves, work, improve themselves, et cetera, is really, really important because sales is a hard job. It is a lot of rejection basically. Uh, and if you're really self-aware about where you're good, where you're bad, where you want improvement or you need to go out and seek help, um, you're going to be an incredibly strong salesperson at the end of the day. So if the answer to what do you do when you hear no is I, I rage and I just start like breaking things, you probably not. doesn't go well. You'd be surprised <laughs> what people say though. Honestly, it's been an interesting, it's it's a really interesting question to ask people. Ask it in your next interview, see what happens. I love, no, I really do like that question. So one of the things that you mentioned before was like this new person coming in, you're probably not going to have a process built out. And for everyone listening, as you think about your sales process and who that first hire is going to be, it's also important to understand is the product that they're selling living up to its name? And is it something that they can stand behind and is not going to break the second that they sell a customer? You want to make sure your product is strong so that way you can ultimately grow your sales. And to make sure your product is strong, you need a partner to make sure that that product's going to be strong. And that partner goes by the name of Akeva. They're your partner to help you go from zero to one. So as you know, I like to say, whether that's blockchain or no chain, Web3 or Web2, mobile apps or SaaS, Akeva builds it at startup speed and enterprise level refinement. That's why hundreds of startups trust them like Stride, Haveno, Olive, Side, and so many more all the way from their first dollar up to their billion dollar valuation. And they are ready to help you become the goat to market. And how are they going to do that right away? Well, they've got a killer offer for you. It's called a You Call It Code Review. What is a You Call It Code Review? Well, for those who qualify, a cable will review the most critical parts of your code so you can see exactly what your tech needs to either initially launch or scale up after launch. And they will do this completely free. And then you call it from there. It's kind of like, you know, that Friday night at the bar where it's like, you call it well drinks. Think of it like that. It's a, you call it code review. Uh, So you want to get, you want to understand the critical aspects of your code. And then do you want to handle it on your own from there? Great. You call it. You want to take it somewhere else entirely and have someone else develop it. Great. You call it. You want Akeva's development help with it. You call it. You call the shots here. It's a, you call it code review. I don't think anyone else offers that. And that's why they're from day one, they're such a strong partner to have. We refer startups to them all the time, and they have saved several from potential doomsday scenarios with code they were using that was offshore developed and was quite hollow, uh, and they were building things on a house of cards without realizing it. So Akeba is there to help make sure that doesn't happen to you, and that as you bring on that sales team, as you bring on that marketing team, there's a real product behind what they're selling, and it's not just smoke mirrors and something that's going to collapse. Ready to see if you qualify for a You Call It code review? Just head to akava.io. That's A-K-A-V-A.io, akava.io, and tell them Startup Hype Man sent you. Today on the Goat to Market Show season finale episode, we're with Olivia Heron from Samcart, and we're talking through how to build a sales team from scratch. Now, before the break there, Olivia, you had mentioned this notion of like, hey, this first person who comes in is not necessarily going to have an entirely built out process. So do you think you're like, is it okay to hire someone whose goal is to sell, but also be like, hey, you kind of got to figure out what 
what the process is to sell this thing? Or should you have some, some element of a playbook that you're giving to them? Um, it's of course helpful to have an element of the playbook. I think the the big things that you should establish, I would hope that a founder would establish before bringing someone on board is sort of like, you know, what are the key pain points, obviously that you're, you're solving for at the end of the day, if you can have a pretty crisp ICP, um, that you're going after in terms of, um, who you need to be talking to, to get this done. And, and Chris by ICP is a, is a tricky one. I think a lot of people will say like, Oh, well, anybody who, you know, for drop deck, great example, anybody who builds a deck or anybody who builds a presentation should be using drop deck. It's like, okay, well that's so broad. It's really hard to then harness in. I'm like, well, who do you actually want to be doing this and why? And so going through that motion and really spending time looking at who are the customers that you you may already have on board, what were the things that were sort of similar across them, um, and and where can you really further define that so that you're not just in some sort of terrible spray and pray mode um, will ensure that your your win rate goes up honestly and you're you're really um, executing well at the end of the day. So. So yeah, knowing your the value prop, really understanding your ICPs, and then hopefully you've got one or two revs under your belt in terms of just pitching and having those conversations. And when you get this person on board, continuing to work with them to refine that will be really important. Um, I do think that you know setting goals will be critical to, to bringing this person on board as well. So you can't be in a situation where you bring them on and you're expecting them to suddenly be closing deals. Like that's just, that's not going to happen. And so we talk a lot about kind of productivity metrics as the first part of that in terms of the the sales funnel. And then maybe obviously later down the line, getting to a place where you're sort of more quota driven because you've got a repeatable process that you know will lead to the outcomes that you need at the end of the day. So one of the things we did here, um, you know, a couple episodes ago, we had as a guest, Whitney Dermick, who joined our company as employee number one recently. Um, and while she's creating pitches uh, on behalf of clients, she's also um, stepped into a sales role as well. Um, and one of the things is, and this is where I think it's really tough. Like you can tell yourself, oh, I need to have a playbook ready for this person or, a, you know, a roadmap ready for them. And it, it just, there's a million reasons why it doesn't end up happening. Most of which is you just, it's really hard if you're the founder to know, like to, to take that time out and be like, I'm going to sit down and do this. Uh, Cause you just don't even know where to start usually. Um, one of the things that Whitney did was she actually just took it upon herself to build, like she sat in on like a half dozen calls and then just built out a playbook and then showed it to me and, and was like, okay, what do we need to tweak in this? Mm-hmm. And that worked really well as a step one to not only have her get direct exposure to what the sales process is like, but to take ownership and build the playbook. And now it, like it's her playbook, right? And she she has her name to it. Um, I think it makes the, and it has made sort of the onboarding, if you will, for sales a lot easier because it's not a quote unquote script or a... Um, you know, I'll use the word again, a playbook that's given to her saying, Hey, learn this. If she was the active creator of it, it you know, the knowledge retention is so much easier um, because it was her sitting down and typing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I firmly believe in that too. Um, I think it depends on the hire, obviously, and, and who you get on board. Um, but to that effect, um, the, the playbook creation is really important. I think that the product a knowledge is really important really early. I think the more that you encourage this person to like really deeply understand this product, use it themselves, dog food, see if you have something like a full story or you have a way of watching other customers do it, watching other customers do it, because to that point, you're internalizing the problems that you're solving for them. And then you can speak to it like a human, not like, you know, an enterprise sales robot. Like Mm. you can say like, oh, I tried to create this deck the other day. It was awful. Uh, Here's how I actually did this, you know, in drop deck or whatever the case may be. And that, that becomes so much more real. Um, And I, and I tell founders this too. I mean, like, I think at the end of the day, like you're a human and it's okay to be a human. And so to the question or like way earlier about, you know, getting into the sales cycle and you don't feel like a salesperson, tell your founder story. There's a reason why you did this. It's a lot of work to be a founder. You don't just 
like fall into that. You, you make a conscious commitment to like being a founder at the end of the day. And like telling that story will resonate with the people it's supposed to resonate with. And it means that you've found the right ICP and you can really be curious and dig into their problems. And that that's a whole world that um, I think people struggle with. And so I, I totally agree to your, your ownership comment, like being able to tell stories in your own words, using your own narrative, because it's impacting you is way easier than attempting to you know follow a script at the end of the day and more authentic. Mm-hmm. And so let me potentially combat this a little bit in that um, I think product knowledge is important. I would almost make the case though, that if you educate them more or they get educated about it on their own, but if there's more emphasis on the market problem or problem set, that's more important than knowing everything about the product. Do you agree, disagree? It's more important. Um, I'm not sure I would agree that it's more. I guess what I would say is it's equally. And you could say maybe which one comes first. So to your to your comment, like I do think that really deeply understanding the industry and really being able to drive discovery is really important. And to your point, you can only do that if you actually understand the industry or the problem sets, et cetera. Um, and then the the product knowledge can and should follow, but also you definitely want to be in a situation where you can answer questions. And I don't mean that. And like, of course, if you don't know something, you can say, let me get back to you on that. And that's okay. But um, I do think you want to also establish yourself as an authority in that process. And that authority should come with your, with your product in mind, obviously. And if you don't know the pieces of that, that can be problematic too. So um, yeah, I think early conversation, you know, the product knowledge can come like over time as you learn it better, et cetera, like it will definitely come. And especially when you're an early company, your, your early salespeople are going to know everything about your product. Cause they've had a long, long time with it, which is awesome. Um, and yes, you're right. Industry knowledge and really digging into those discovery questions is incredibly important in those early conversations too. Let's hit on the aspect of goals you mentioned before, right? Um, when it's a founder selling, I mean, you know generally like what revenue numbers you're trying to hit, but you're not necessarily and most likely you don't have yourself on a quota. Yeah. Um, you don't you know, if it's a down month, you don't, you don't put yourself on a pip, if you will. Um, how do you even figure out what, what goals to set, like what category of metric KPIs, et cetera, when you bring in this first person to be like, this is an accurate way of grading performance. Yeah. So it, it, again, it's always, it's always going to very, you know, product led versus sales led, for example. Um, and so on the, on the sales led side, I think it's relatively sh- straightforward. You're looking at productivity, um, from a true kind of, um, outbounding perspective, usually, um, where you're thinking through, okay, who do I need to go after? How frequently am I touching them? What are those conversations looking like? Are these value props resonating? Are you getting people on the phone at the end of the day? And um, what's that looking like? And you're, you're again, looking for commonalities in all of these conversations and starting to get to a place where you've got a repeatable process at hand, right? Like, oh, this worked this time. Can we do this again? It didn't work that time, but it was this one step that didn't work. Okay, let's do this again and change that one step. And you're kind of marching in that direction. And so uh, usually productivity focused, very outbound focused, um, on the sales led side of the, uh, KPIs. Um, and so it's just like, and and this can be really basic. Like how many conversations are you having a week? Like, it doesn't have to be how many emails did you send? It can literally be how many times did you get someone on a call? For example, like what did those calls lead to? Um, and, and then, you know, slowly making your way kind of up a ladder, so to speak, in terms of building out your, your top of funnel and then also building out, obviously, the conversion at the bottom of the funnel, to kind of going up and down, I guess. On the product-led side, you know, I've been thinking a lot about this as we onboard someone to drop deck, and um, we're going to look for sort of similar things. And so um, one of the things that we're going to do is really look at um, getting on the phone with people who've had access to a product for a certain period of time. So you've signed up, we have a free trial situation, um, you've had access for four days. Have you built anything like giving them a call and just, again, 
really being curious and really using that for discovery opportunity. Um, people who have actually converted from the trial, same thing. So it's going to be a little bit more focused on insights. And, and again, hard to quantify from like a specific KPI. It's not like, oh, we've gotten seven insights on yada, yada, but it's more like, who are these people and what do they look like? And we're trying to crisp up even our ICP. So can we use this to do some of that? Is there a target market we want to go after where this really does solve a pain point? It's a little bigger than X. It's a little smaller than Y. Um, So yeah, it'll be heavily focused on more of that kind of relationship aspect and really just understanding uh, use cases, driving product insights that we can hopefully give back to the product team. Um, and then same thing, starting to kind of build that pipeline from there on people who are interested in, you know, further expansion of, of the product and across their team, et cetera. Now, is there a blanket amount of time that you should be setting to say, I should know by this point if this is working out or not? That's a good question. I- I always think that time constraining something is a good idea. I don't think it's a definitive. I know by this point, this has happened or this hasn't happened. I think what it would more be is just like, you should have some trip wires though. Like mm-hmm. you've got a couple of trip wires along the way that like. I can tell you're some- in e-commerce if you use the phrase trip wire. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, you know, it's funny. I actually use it when I'm talking to people about their careers and whether or not they, they're deciding <laughs> to leave a company, for example. It's like, hey, set set some trip wires. <laughs> If X happens or Y happens, like make a decision. Um, and I think the same holds true, honestly, for for sales teams. So you've got a couple moments in time where it's like, hey, we, we've got a defined date that we're going to review what's happening. And then it's like, okay, if if things look like this, let's move over here. If things don't look like this, let's go back. Now, I will say one thing that's really interesting is I think going from a PLG motion and adding in sales is really easy or easier, I guess I would say. I will say starting as a sales-led motion and attempting to sort of move backwards into a PLG motion, I think is is harder, to be honest with you, for a whole bunch of different reasons. And so I do think like things like how do you want to be perceived in the market and what do those conversations need to look like um, are critical to define upfront. It's why you being the founder and and sort of having those conversations, those sales conversations early days is important because those motions are incredibly different and mixing them is hard and on, on both sides, honestly. And I do think going from sales led back to PLG is a lot harder than the other way around. Mm. I, want, I got two more quick questions before we hit our wrap up. One is, you know, we We've talked a lot about the first sales hire. Um, Technically, the title of this episode is around building a sales team from scratch. So after hire number one, are you looking for that same person in a different body? Or are you looking for more more dynamic input? Yeah, that's a good... I I think you're always looking for a compliment, right? So you, you will get one salesperson on board early days who is really strong at X, you know, having conversations and developing storylines and marketing effect. They're really, really good at marketing. Maybe they're not as strong on the process side. They don't have a lot of process tactic. They're doing it, but it's not where you need it to be in terms of continued measurement. So maybe in the next salesperson, you look for somebody who's got a little bit more of a structured sales background, who really understands how the components should work together and what you want to be tracking. And hopefully the marketing person is helping them with them being really good storytellers and the the process person is helping the marketing person with getting this really on track. So I do think of people as overlap, but complement. Um, and when you're building a team, so like there's overlapping things that you must have in some of these people. And then there's all kinds of complementing things along the way. And you should be looking for those different pieces. Um, depending on how the salesperson is doing, you you may also be in a situation where you you brought in an AE first and they were doing both all of the outbound plus all of the calls. And then you may be saying, okay, they're getting so many calls and they're doing so great in closing. We need somebody dedicated entirely just to this sort of outbound motion. And then you're bringing on kind of a complementing SDR who can help this AE have more conversations 
um, really dig in with these customers, et cetera, and taking some of the like work of getting the meetings on in the first place off of their plate. Um, but it, it, yeah, it depends a little bit on like what's happening with your business. Are you getting a lot of inbound? You may not need an SDR immediately. You may need two AEs. Are you not getting as much inbound, but your AEs kind of killing it when they do get on a call? Okay. Then it's time to explore the SDR and figure out how to get more happening, um, from that perspective. So that's how I, there, there's lots of different pieces, but, um, I, usually it's not two of the same unless you're in some sort of magical world of just tons of inbound and you're like, I got to get on the call with all of these people. Like, how do I make this happen quickly? So then my last question before we head to our wrap up is when you're building up this team, is it a slow, gradual fade out of the founder exiting sales themselves? Or is it you make that first hire and you they get 100% of it and the founder should, should quit selling? Um. I think founders should stay involved in sales for as long as possible, honestly, as a, as a means of being connected to the customer. Now, that does not mean that they're driving the deal. Those are different, right? You know, a founder can be brought in strategically to uplevel a conversation or to get you to the right executive or whatever the case may be. But the desire to stay as close as possible to your customers, I, I hope never goes away. Um, you know, I know Justin Smith, for example, like still takes calls with creators to just figure out what they're doing because it's mm. worth it for him to really deeply understand, you know, the problems that they're facing and, and what they're going through. Um, I, I I do think that like obviously stepping away and giving them space to to execute is really important. But I think that 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 deep tie to like what is happening with a customer, oftentimes which comes through your sales team, is really really valuable and something you should hold on to, um, while you can, and as long as you can. And even when your company is enormous at the end of the day, and even the VPs at Facebook I mean, got on calls with small businesses all the time. No question. They wanted to get on calls. Mm-hmm. They really deeply wanted to understand were they pitching and selling? No, like, but it, they were doing kind of the most fundamental thing of sales, which was discovery and really deeply being curious about what was happening and really making it worth their time because they could tie the needs of these customers back to everything we were doing from operations all the way through, like the content we were producing at the end of the day to make sure we were relevant and valuable for these people. Let's begin our wrap up. First off, Olivia, where can our listeners find you? Where can they learn more? And where can they learn more about Samcart and DropDeck and all the good stuff? Definitely. um, You can find me on LinkedIn um, and you can dig into all things Samcart on samcart.com dropdeck.com and creatoru.com, great places to go and just see what's happening. Um, the Samcart blog is particularly awesome, has lots of great content for people who are um, creators, becoming creators, thinking about how to drive the most from their business at the end of the day. Who is one person who you want to give a shout out to who's been influential in your journey? Man, I think I'll give a shout out to Emery Rosansky. She is now the VP of go-to-market at first round. Um, but I had the chance to work with her at actually not one, but two different startups in my uh, career. And she's just been an incredibly valuable friend and valuable coworker. Um, and ultimately someone I've learned a ton from. She has great content on the first round website about you know starting go-to-market questions that she gets from early founders. I would absolutely go check her out. I think she's just got great advice. We'll now do our top one or two lessons or takeaways for the listeners based on the discussion today. I'll go first, then I'll toss it over to you. The topic today was building a sales team from scratch. We covered a lot of ground. One thing I want to make sure people don't forget uh, coming out of this is the interview question you mentioned. So when hiring for a sales role, ask in the interview, what do you do when you hear no? Olivia, top one or two lessons or takeaways for the listeners. I think um, my first sort of lesson or takeaway is like, don't be afraid of sales. You're doing it all the time. Um, And, you know, one of the reasons that you become a founder is because you're deeply curious, like lean in hard to being curious when you're on the phone with your customers and lead in hard to the impact of the problems that they're flagging to you so that you can quantify those and really show how your, your product will work for them at the end of the day and the impact your product actually will have on those things. So that's one big thing. And, And the other one is just thinking through, um, you know, defining who you need on your team. So if you're if you're on the PLG side, thinking through kind of that account management like um, role and and the qualities that are attributes that come with those types of people versus this like kind of 
hard outbound selling motion and, and the attributes and qualities that may come with that people and really understanding how you want to go to market will really help you get the the right hire the first time to, to execute against kind of what that vision will look like at the end of the day. My final question, which is how we end every episode on this show, fill in the blank, Olivia. Entrepreneurship is blank. Uh, entrepreneurship is a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle. You're going to get it eventually. It's just going to take you a while to fit all those pieces together. <laughs> thousand piece. We haven't gotten that one yet. Thousand piece jigsaw puzzle. I love it. She is Olivia Heron with Sam Cart. And guess what, everybody? If you ha- you're listening to this and you had questions that came up, you're like, oh, I wish he would ask this, or I wish I had a chance to ask her this. You have that opportunity because coming up the entire first week, that this episode airs, Olivia is hopping into Goat to Market Club for an Ask Me Anything. Think of it like the official after party of the podcast. So you got more questions around building a sales team. Uh, Olivia is there to, you can ask her anything. You got questions about why she knew at age, age, age three, she didn't want to go into politics. You can ask her more questions on that. Um, you're going to ask about the American Red Cross. You can ask her anything on that. She's here to help and answer your questions and ask me anything happening the entire first week that this episode goes live only inside of Goat to Market Club. That's our online founder community. Joining is easy. Just head to startuphypeman.com slash GTM dash club, startuphypeman.com slash GTM dash club. That'll tie a bow and put a pin on this season of the Goat to Market show. Thank you again, Olivia, for joining us on our season finale episode. And everybody out there, don't worry. The next season is coming soon. We've got a special next season of this show where it's going to be a Making the Goat series or a season rather. Uh, We're going to take you behind the scenes of the creation of the first ever startup hip hop album appropriately titled Goat to Market. Thanks again, Olivia. Thank you. Have a good one. That does it for this week's episode. Thank you again to our guests for joining and sharing their knowledge. Did you like what you heard? Well, leave us a rating and review on your podcast app before you head out of here. And while you're at it, who's one friend who you think would find value in hearing today's conversation? Go ahead and share the episode with them. I would really appreciate it. And I thank you for doing that. Remember, we've got more going down with our guest inside Goat to Market Club. Think of it like the after show, the after party, the after hours special. Our guest is going to hop inside the club and do an Ask Me Anything. So you can follow up with any of those questions that came to mind as you were listening. You can follow up and ask them to our guest inside our club. To join, just head to startuphypeman.com slash GTM dash club. Startuphypeman.com slash GTM dash club gtm club is nine dollars a month but your first month is free you can cancel anytime and you're not only getting the amas you're also getting our monthly strategy drops that are for members only where we're teaching hyper specific tactical go-to-market strategies plus cool member-to-member interactions and other bonus resources all of that happens inside the club so again startuphypeman.com slash gtm dash club we'll see you inside the club and we'll see you next week but before you head out remember why be a unicorn when you can be the goat